there might be coincidental moments in life where things just happen to happen at the same time because of random nature and probabilities and things. There are things that occur which are coincidental. But for we who believe that God knows every detail in advance, we also believe that he can coordinate those details. And so some coincidences aren't coincidences at all. They're God's timing. Some things are not, wow, I'm so glad that happened at that moment. It's like God saying, I was ready for you when you got to that moment that I knew was coming. Timing. We think of like hours in the day and God thinks of like his blueprint for all of eternity. We think what's going to happen next and God knows what's going to happen. You know how like different that would be for us if we just knew everything that was going to happen, like how it would change our perspective, what it would feel like in terms of stress or no stress, or if we just knew something bad was happening, either a resignation or like a discouragement because we just know it's going to happen no matter what we do. Like God's perspective is a very weighty one. He carries that weight on his shoulders of knowing every good and every bad thing, but he also is omnipotent. He's all-powerful. So he intervenes in human history, and he has, and does, and continues to. And so our job is to sort of keep our eyes open, our ears open, to say, is this one of those moments where it's just sort of like a coincidental occurrence, or is this God bringing pieces together at a certain time in a certain way because it's God's timing. This is our task as Christians. This is actually our life. We make a lot of our decisions based on, wow, this job offer came at just the right time, right? (laughs) I feel like God provided it. So in that moment, we're not saying, wow, what a coincidence. I was out of work, and the next day I got a job. We said God loves us, and he promises to provide for us, so thank you. Because ultimately, the timing is all about reliance. The timing is about gratitude, God, what are you doing and what is your timing? We don't want to be out of step with him. It's like dancing with someone and you're all out of step with each other. You want to be in sync. The Bible says keep in step with the Spirit. Maybe it's a dancing term. I don't know. For those of you that dance, you'll have to tell me. But we want to keep in step with the Spirit, whether walking, running, dancing, or whatever else he's doing. And so the passage that we find ourselves in the Gospel of John, chapter 4, is about this perfect kind of timing. It is not coincidental what happens. It is God that happens in this moment. But the passage is very brief. We're going to read it. The story will be done. Like I said, it's John chapter 4, starting in, I think, verse uh, 43. Uh, But it begs the bigger question, how do we read God's timing? And are we, like, reading into his timing? Are we, like, missing his timing in places? Are we attributing things that are just our thoughts to his timing? So from this story, I'd like to read a few other verses around the Bible that talk about various aspects of God's timing and just, first of all, just appreciate him and that way that he works in this world that he's created like a clockwork and it goes on seasons and cycles and times and yet he steps in and changes seasons and times. And I think I want us to just appreciate that, but also we're in a time, a certain time in our life, making decisions at work, making decisions at church. And again, we don't really want to be the ones deciding We want to be the ones discovering. All right, God, what are you saying? Because usually the way that we gauge success or failure is if it works out well or not, right? That must have been God's work because, see, I got that job and then I got that promotion. It must have been God's will because things worked out. But the Bible's filled with people where God's will was for them to go through hard times. But if we're trying to judge it based on our decision, 
pros and cons, made the better one, things worked out, that may or may not be how God is going to judge that situation. So it's hard for us to judge. We may be absolutely in the middle of God's will and going through an absolutely difficult time. We just need to make sure we're in God's will. And then come what may. Come what may. All right, so John chapter 4. Let's read this story. Is where Jesus heals an official's son. This is an official in the court of Herod. We know that Herod was deemed king of the Jews, but he was kind of like this pseudo-political religious figure. He married the daughter of one of the priests so that he could kind of be in the religious conversation, but it was all power plays. He rebuilt the temple, but he made it lavish, so he took this kind of honorable sanctuary, the second temple as it was rebuilt, and he made it this kind of like gaudy statement to his own wealth and riches, so tainted. Many of the the believers, many of the Jews at that time, their opinion of what even the temple is, they looked at it and it's kind of like, ugh, what is that gross thing? And others like, look, God's blessing, and there was all sorts of divided opinion. But this is one of the either soldiers or officials in Herod's court coming to Jesus. So that in and of itself, Jesus is king of the Jews. So the titled king of the Jews, one of his people, is coming to the true king of the Jews looking for help. And he comes 20 miles, so he doesn't come any short distance. He's, he's looking for help, and he's desperate. And Jesus is there for him. So that's our context. Let's read it together. John chapter 4, verse 46. So Jesus came again, came back to Cana in Galilee, where he had made the water wine. What do you think the people would have been looking for if the person who was here turned all that water into wine came back? Maybe more wine, but definitely more miracles, right? This is that guy that did that thing. Did you hear he's back? And Jesus always gets kind of annoyed with that. You just want what you want. You want me to do special stuff for you to make you feel like special people and give you special things and make special outcomes to your special problem. Like, I'm God here to save you. And the details of your life are the small end, the small need. The large capital N is your soul, your spirit. Do you believe them, the Son of God? So he encounters this. Every time he comes back or people follow him from one miracle to the next, he's like, I'm not like a magician. I'm not like a trick pony. I'm not here to do tricks for you. I'm here to introduce you to God. Don't you know who he is? Don't you know he loves you? So like Jesus, he wrestles with this. I mean, we would wrestle with wanting to be able to do more miracles to show God's glory. Jesus can do as many miracles as he ever wants, and he wrestles with, should I? Is it just going to make them greedy for miracles? Want me to multiply more bread for you because you're hungry? Well, what's more important? What if I satisfy all your needs? Are you going to be hungry for God? As I know in my experience, the better off I am, the less hunger I have for God. The more satisfied and content I feel, the less desperate I feel for God to save me because I don't feel like I need to be so like... Jesus wrestled with it from an entirely different perspective than we would. And you see that play out here. But he's back in Cana where the first miracle, the first sign of his divinity occurred. At Capernaum, 20 miles away, there was an official whose son was ill. Now, when this man heard that Jesus had come from Judea to Galilee, he went to him. It's a long trip, right? 20 miles. He's traveled to him. And he asked him to come down and heal his son. So Jesus, come with me 20 miles back to my house. It's not a small ask. This leads me to think that this is like a a, a higher up official. I don't think a lowly person would come and demand that Jesus walk 20 miles to come heal. That's an attitude of someone who's used to being obeyed, who's used to giving suggestions and having them follow. Jesus doesn't take a suggestion, but he does heal his son. 
He asked him to come down and heal his son, for he was at the point of death. We're like, death's door. So Jesus said to him, this is kind of like the, and he's talking to the crowd as well. He's not just talking to this man. Unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. The official said to him, sir, come down before my child dies. So he continues. He has faith. He believes. Jesus said to him, go, your son will live. So the man with no proof whatsoever, no evidence, no telephone, no text message, nothing, believed. Standing 20 miles away, talking to this man, he says, your son's fine. He's like, oh, my son's fine. Like, we see his faith. <laughs> there are many who would be doubting, like, well, how do I know? Or when will he be fine? Or what happened? Or, no, he doesn't, he just believes. That's the kind of faith that Jesus calls us to. That's a great faith. So maybe he wanted signs. Maybe he's in a crowd of people that want this, but he truly was a believer. So the man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him, and he went on his way. Now, as he was going down, this is like a, a literal thing. It's, it's height-wise. This area was higher than this, so he's like traveling back down to his home. Yes, verse 51. As he was going down, his servants met him, like they ran to meet him, and told him his son was recovering. So he asked them the hour when he began to get better. He's like, tell me the minute. I want to know to the second when that was. And they said, yesterday at the seventh hour, the fever just left him. So he's traveled overnight. Right? Whenever he met with Jesus to travel the 20 miles, like oh, yesterday, this thing happened. The father knew that was the hour. <laughs> that was the minute what Jesus had said to him, your son will live. And he himself believed and all of his household. This is now the second sign that Jesus did when he had come from Judea to Galilee. That's so cool. What a coincidence, right? <laughs> No, that's God's timing. God was there for that man and responded to his faith through Jesus doing a healing at that exact moment. So that man went home and the response was, we all have to follow this Jesus. I can't see what I just saw and then go back to wondering, is this Jesus who he says he is? Is God willing to heal? Does, do miracles happen? I can't go back to that. Almost like what Chase was saying, when you live a certain way, like going back feels like weird. He's like, but I've already seen this. I can't now unsee that or unthink that or unfeel that. And so this man, his life was changed. And so it impacted him. And how does it say? He himself believed and all of his household. Because usually when you get really excited about something, you, 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 you spread, you talk about it. And in those days, you know, the man of the house had this tremendous influence. But even so, it doesn't say that they kind of went along with it. They truly believed too. They were the ones at the house. Fever is gone. He was the one there. So the family got to experience that the family was saved. This is God's timing. And it's beautiful. And so, like I said, I want to look at a few other verses. I want to expand upon this. Jesus is the exact representation of God, right? That's what Colossians is, the exact physical representation. So everything we see Jesus do is like a small example of what God always does all the time. I even heard someone use this comparison with turning water into wine. So Jesus on one day turned water into wine for six purification vessels. God, every single year, waters 
the grapes and turns water into wine around the planet every single year and provides the exact same miracle for us. God does things in mass, in large, in scope, and Jesus is like these glimpses. God creates life, and so Jesus restores life. He's just the picture, and so that's why I want to move through a few scriptures and just kind of appreciate this truth. So we're going to Galatians first. Galatians chapter 4. They're all very, there are four of them. They're very short passages. We're going to just read them one after the other and just think about God's timing. So move along a little further into the New Testament. Galatians chapter 4. Okay. Verse 3. Galatians 4, 3. This is talking about Jesus coming at the perfect time. There are countless examples of this in history, but God chooses when things will happen because he knows the timing is perfect. So he relates it to when a baby is born. Fullness of time. Fullness, ripeness of time. It's the same exact words used for childbearing that are used for God sending Jesus into the world. So Galatians 4 verse 3 says, In the same way we also... When we were children, we were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. Basically, just you think the way everybody thinks. You just hook, line, and sink, or whatever they tell you in school, whatever they tell you in the world, whatever you read, whatever you hear, just you believe that. Enslaved to worldly principles. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. So the timing in history was perfect for Christ. And because of that, the life of Christ was perfect. And because of that, our faith in Christ is perfect. It's full. We've kind of speculated before, what would it be like if Jesus came in the Garden of Eden before they ever ate of the fruit? Like, what are you here for? Like, we don't need to be saved. We live with God. Like, we just walk with him every day. Like, a, a savior before the perfect time is irrelevant. But there's also a time where it feels like, well, what if all these prophecies of things that would happen in Bethlehem, in Jerusalem, with the temple before it was destroyed, 300 years from now, this many 77s, and what if all of that just went by and nothing ever happened? And Jesus came like today. He's like, well, well, then why do all those prophecies get the times wrong? Because I thought God knew what he was saying. And doesn't God know what his plan is, right? So that also isn't the fullness of time. It's like a baby who's born premature and it's not healthy. Or a baby who's overdue and is like the mother is groaning with labor and the baby's suffering by needing to be born. Like the fullness of time is the perfect timing. It's God's timing. And Jesus is God's timing. He was born in this Roman Empire where the Jews were coming in. They'd already been dispersed so they could hear about Jesus in Jerusalem and then take it back. You know, to Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth. There was the scattering. Perfect timing. Perfect timing. The Roman roads, right? The Romans are viewed as these kind of like evil figures in Scripture. And by and large, they kind of were. But that road system, how did Paul travel? How did news travel? How did Jesus spread his word through his disciples? It's within this structure, right? A temple torn down, a temple rebuilt, Jesus, the new temple. Like the timing, timing is impeccable. So our salvation is built upon God's perfect timing. Jesus was perfectly 
timed. So that takes us to the second of these, uh, and it's in Romans chapter 5. So turn back just a few pages. And this is for us, again, specifically. This isn't just Mary, Joseph. Again, the census. The census bringing them to there. Herod, you know, the, the children being killed. So the flight to Egypt and all these prophecies coming true. They would come out of Egypt, be born in Bethlehem, come from Nazareth. Like all of this stuff, timing. It had to be perfect. And it was. And God knew it was. So it's actually not hard for him. Because <laughs> he just knows. And so we just set this up and we say this. All right, I'll tell you, prophet, because this is coming. Like he just knows. God's timing, that's what we need. We need to rely on God's timing. So in Romans chapter 5, we have another example of this. And I think it starts in verse 5. Now we're going to start at the beginning of the chapter. We'll go through um, verse 6 and 7 there, which is the, the key point. But just here, Paul writing, he says, Therefore, since we have been justified, we've been made right with God. Through our faith, we have peace with God, through our Lord Jesus Christ. And through him, we've also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. And we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. You know, we're, we're not afraid of end times, to put it in context of our, We're not afraid of that. We rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. We're looking forward with hope. We're not afraid of politics. We're not afraid of COVID. We're not afraid of these things. We live in hope. We are people of hope. Right? And more than this, we rejoice even in our sufferings, knowing that our suffering will produce some endurance in us. This is good. We need this. Christ had this. And that endurance, it'll produce character. And character will give us hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit, who has been given to us. So this is the timing piece of it. Verse 6. For while we were still weak, at just the right time, Jesus died for the ungodly. Now, one or a person will scarcely or hardly ever, this is a tricky wording, this, this verse always trips people up, but it's, it's a very simple concept. Nobody hardly ever would die for a good person, for a righteous person. One would scarcely die for a righteous person. Though maybe for a good enough, we could say, good enough person, one would dare to die but God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God? So at just the right time, not when we were ready, not when we were good, not when we had figured things out while we were still sinners. So we take God's timing for granted if we think that we were at the right place, or if we think if we hadn't done this, then we would have never met God, or if that person never said it, it wasn't about us having it together. It was God saying, I'm calling you, and us hearing and responding. This goes for us to others then the same way. The timing is not, when do I think someone will be ready to hear this? The timing is, I just feel God's telling me to do something or serve or help or pray or preach or give in some way while they are still caught in sin because that will be part of the grace that sets them free from it. So God's timing for us is not based upon us and we should not wait for our perfect timing to talk to someone about him because if God had done that for us, we wouldn't be here in the first place. So the timing is a timing that initiates. All right, now we're back into the Old Testament. We're back to 1 Chronicles. This is just one verse. It's 1 Chronicles chapter 12. And it's in the midst of a long line of King David counting his mighty men. Right? 
And there's one particular group of people that are mentioned. And I hope we can be like them. I, I love how they're described. So First Chronicles, so kind of back near the Kings, Chronicles, um, First Chronicles chapter 12. And let's see if I can find my way to... Yes, verse 32. So all these mighty men are just joining David, and there's some descriptions of some of them. They're the set apart. They were known for this, or they were skilled in this, or they had fought this war. But this particular group in 1 Chronicles chapter 12, verse 32, it says, The men of Issachar were men who had understanding of the times to know what Israel ought to do. Other translations say, you know, of these men, of Issachar, men who knew the times and knew what to do. That's just such an interesting description for a, a particular group of Christians. It, to me, it, it describes people who understand the culture around them, not just their own culture. They knew the times. But also people who understood, like, signs like when is the right time like this is the time to do this you know the time for that it strikes me as a group of people that were very sensitive to what God was saying whether it's the time to go forward I picture these people being kind of like the the barometer for the whole list of people before and after them you know these sons of Issachar they know the times they know what to do we're all willing to fight for God but these particular men just have something about them that connects them to know what's needed at this moment in time. It's, it's a special gift, maybe. It's a form of discernment. It's a form of connection to culture. It's a form of connection to the Holy Spirit. And if we are going to say that God has perfect timing, we need to be people that know the times. Because if there's any miscommunication going on, it's not God. And he knows the time. So our job is to try to connect with him. Say, God, what is this the time for? What is this the season for? What is this the moment for with Jesus at that very hour? Right? Jesus knew the times. Says phrases like that all throughout the Gospels. He knew it was in the heart of man. He knew that it was not his time. He knew it was his time. Like, are we people who know the times and know what to do? That's just the process of discernment. May we be like the sons of Issachar. And now we go back to Genesis 22 for the last of our scriptures to kind of bring this full circle. Genesis 22, God's timing. I just want to read this whole story of Abraham and Isaac for us. And think about timing, think about willingness that Abraham had to sacrifice that which was most precious to him. But God not wanting him to actually sacrifice, God just wanting the willingness. And God having pre-prepared the solution based upon the obedience of his son. Of course, there's a million allusions to God and Jesus, the sacrifice of his only son, right? Um, but God's timing in this is impeccable. And a moment sooner or a moment later, this would not be the story that it is. It would have different lessons to teach, but this is what God brought about. Genesis 22, 
verses, starting with verse 1. After all these things, God tested Abraham. He said to him, Abraham, and he said, here am I. He said, take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. So Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey, and took two of his young men with him and his son Isaac. We don't remember sometimes that at the very beginning of this, Abraham was still learning who this God was that was calling him. He had an encounter with a God that said, leave your family and go to the land I'm taking you. But all the pagan religions sacrificed kids all the time. That was like very common in that day and age. And it's one of the things that God punished those civilizations for by casting them out. You know, he brought in Israel as kind of like a blessing and a curse at the same time, a blessing to Israel for faithfulness, but also a punishment for all these crazy things. So I wonder if in this moment, Abraham's like, which God did I get myself hooked up with here? Maybe this is the child sacrificing kind of God, but he actually is willing. He's like, I don't, he doesn't, he just knows there's God talking to him and walks in that way. And seems willing to do this thing, even though the God that he's following, so, like, is this a fickle God that I've followed? What kind of faith is that? We would probably like, sign off at the beginning of that request. <laughs> We'd sign off on the journey entirely. No, this is not what I signed up. You're not the God that I follow. That My God would never say that, but God isn't actually saying, kill your son. He's testing Abraham. Would you give up your son? the most nearest, dearest thing, the child of promise, who you prayed for, who was impossible to have, would you even be willing to give that love up? You don't have to, but are you willing? <laughs> oh, so Abraham doesn't know as much about God as we do. We read back into him more information than he had at the time. That was a stunning acceptance on his part. But just truly faith, for better or for worse, this is the God I'm following. Good thing for him that God was not like any of those other false gods. Verse 3, so Abraham rose up early in the morning and he saddled his donkey and he took two of his young men with him and his son Isaac and he cut wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. Now on the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and he saw the place from afar. And then Abraham said to his young men, stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again back to you. So Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac, his son. He's like, here, carry this boy. And uh, then he took in his hands the fire and the knife. And they both went together. So Isaac said to his father, Abraham, my father. And he said, here, my son. He said, behold, the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for a burnt offering? And Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. There's faith somehow. I don't know but I believe. So they both went together. So now when they came to the place of which God had told him, Abraham built an altar there and laid the wood in order. Then he bound Isaac, his son, and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then Abraham reached out his hand and he took the knife to slaughter his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, here am I. And he said, do not lay a hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, seeing that you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. And Abraham lifted up his eyes and he looked. And behold, behind him was a ram caught in the thicket by his horns. 
And Abraham went and he took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called the name of that place, the Lord will provide, as it is said to this day on the mount of the Lord, it shall be provided. So the angel of the Lord called Abraham a second time from heaven and said, By myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you and I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore. And your offspring shall possess the gates of his enemies and in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. This is the same promise that God gave to Abraham back in chapter 12. I will make of you a great nation, and through you all the nations of the earth will be blessed. But he's only got one son, and now he's been asked to give it up. Was he willing? There are moments in our lives we just say, okay, God, I don't care anymore. But not in the like, I, I hate you, I quit kind of thing, but like, I can't do this anymore. This happens sometimes in the pursuit of relationships. I'm never going to find that husband, that wife. I just give up relinquishing that drive, that desire, that what becomes obsession at times, to find the perfect person and make this happen and achieve that future that we're dreaming of. But how many stories have we heard? How many times in our own lives have we found it's when we say, okay, God, I give up. Not in a defeated way, but in a way that I'm going to stop forcing things. I'm going to stop pushing for my own will. If it's not what you want, then I'm going to be okay with it. And then like the next day, you meet a person of your dreams and you get married and live happily ever after. How many times has it happened where we're in a financial place? We're like desperate. I don't know what I'm going to do to provide for my family. I don't know what I'm going to do to meet this need or this huge bill or this medical bill or whatever it's going to be. Try this, try that. You know, hitting your head against the wall, getting nowhere, getting nowhere, getting nowhere. God, I just, I quit. And then a check arrives in the mail or the debt gets forgiven. Or an opportunity arrives that wasn't there the day before, but is there the day after. It's Peter in the boat again. He doesn't prove that the water is solid. He just says, take a step. And as that step happens, he's held up. God doesn't prove things in advance. He promises things in advance. He proves things in the moment. And we look back on it afterwards and we say, ah, he proved his promise. And he did it for Abraham. This happens with us in our lives all the time. But for us to experience God's timing, it requires steps of faith where we don't know what God is doing. It requires us to submit our will and say, I don't know what you're doing. But whatever it is, it's fine. Within our life as the church, you see the parallels for where we're at and like, God, what do you have for us? And he's like, well, take a step of faith. Take it together. Follow me. Hear God's voice and take a step, right? This has been something that's been like, not a wrestling match, but like a thought that God and I have gone back on now for a few years. Because really of anyone, I guess there's probably a handful of people here, but I would be one of the people that would be most attached to this place. You know, when I was in high school, we were building either the first or the second edition, and I got a work study the last period of every day. My friend Rob Wheeler and I came, we hung sheetrock down in the grand room, and I got school credit for it. Fantastic. Got the pastor at the time to sign off on our work study hours. Thanks, Dad. Right? Like, 
for me to see this place as being a holy place because God has been here all those years, I've had to talk with God and say, well, what are you doing with us as we reach out in the community? Is this building our place or, or are we your people regardless of place? And I've needed to say, all right, God, whatever you want to do with a building needs to be fine with me. Because wherever you are is where I want to be. And I think sometimes, probably all of us in some way will have to kind of like think through those things in regards to church, either the way that we know it or in the place we know it or how we've done it. But the question isn't, what have we done and how can we keep doing that? The question is, where is God? And I want to be there. And we're going to have probably Abraham and Isaac moments <laughs> where we have to put certain things on the altar and then just see if God keeps it or takes it, gives it, requires it, but really just be okay. Say, okay, God, whatever it's going to be, it's going to be. Because immediately after that step of faith, you see the timing is like, look at the good things that happened immediately after. Just complete submission. Not my will, but yours be done. That's a good place to be. It's a scary place to be. It's probably pretty scary for Isaac in that moment. It must have been terrifying for Abraham. But it was a test of wills. And for us to not even put up a fight against God, but here will be done. I'm not trying to win this one. Show me something. Speak to me. The voice comes. And just at the right timing, that ram didn't get stuck then. It was already stuck. So God's like, I'm going to send you here, and I'm going to tempt this little ram with some good like flowers and grass. It's going to eat its way up into this thorny patch and get stuck. All right, buddy, go on. It's time. Get going. So, all right, good. Stuck. All right, Abraham. Like, he's coordinating events so that in that very moment, at the seventh hour, when Jesus said, go, your son will be well, the fever left. At that very moment, no, I don't want you to sacrifice your son. I want you to not hold anything back from me. And just be willing. And I'll provide everything. I'll provide the ram in the thicket. So I, I kind of think of our church as like, all right, God, when's the timing? What's the ram in the thicket? <laughs> is it a place? Is it finances? Is it people? Is it programs? Is it outreaches? I don't care. I don't care. I can't have a stake in the game. We can't be fighting for agendas. We can't be fighting for destinations. We just need to be listening to the voice of God. And that's when the timing becomes perfect. The perfect sacrifice is there exactly when we need it. The promises come true, and God fulfills and blesses. That's the pattern we see in Scripture. That's what Jesus did. This speaks to us, to our salvation. It speaks to Jesus, how he did healing. And I think it speaks to the life of our church as well. So I just ask you to think on these things and pray for God's timing, because it will be perfect. It always is, always has been. We just need to kind of be people who know the times and know what to do. And I hope we'll be able to continue to do that together. Let me close this in a word of prayer and then a blessing. Jesus, we come to you because we are often weary and heavy laden. We ask you for rest, but we ask you that you would yoke us to you in a way that doesn't allow us to go to the right or to the left, but that we would be in lockstep with you, that we would be yoked to you in a way that promises that we'll see what you're going to do because we'll be right next to you. You'll be right next to us when you do it. Do not let us go to the left or to the right, Jesus, but let us keep exactly in line, perfectly in line with you. And that is beyond our ability as well. So we ask you to grant us the eyes to see and ears to hear 
what your spirit is saying to this church and to each of us. We ask that you guide us when we stumble and go off on our own ways. We ask that you give us relief from the burden of carrying things that are too heavy for us, which we're not meant to carry at all. Give us a freedom and a lightness, a closeness with you and excitement to see the work that you're at work doing. I want to see you, Jesus. I want to see you move. We believe. We thank you that you came to us at the perfect time and pray that you would be with us in this time and also bring us to others at their perfect time. We pray it all in Jesus' name. Amen.